Hey everybody, uh, this episode of the Aim High Podcast brought to you by SpectacularInteractive.com. Um, if you go to SpectacularInteractive.com, you can go there and put in promo code HANGERTALK14. Spell hanger the right way, like airplane hanger. HANGERTALK14, no spaces, 20% off, and, and it's still available for $199. You throw in that promo code, 20% off, you're down to $160 for interactive online dynamic ground school uh, to get you ready to pass your FAA exam. It's really unbelievable. And with real life stories, including some of mine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that I'll add to that is, is you know, AOPA put out a, a study in 2010 that said that 80% of people that sign up and join a flight school end up dropping out before they get their pilot certificate. Right. Which is sad. I know there's a, a multitude of reasons for that, and that could be a whole podcast in itself. We keep saying that. I make notes of that, by the way. There's but, a big... Yeah. Yeah, but, but there's a lot of reasons why, but the number one cited reason for dropped-out flight school students for why they did it was poor ground school training. Yeah. It gets overwhelming. So my thing is, is, is if you're going to enroll in a school and, and get your ground school together, why enroll in a place that has uh, failed four out of five people? And let's face it, just in one flight, you're going to have covered over half of the cost Absolutely. of this Absolutely. course. So if you went and took five or six flights before you drop out because of your ground school, you just wasted a lot of money. No, so absolutely. invest in a good ground school. But also, also, um, <laughs> also CFI Erica will tell you that, that awesome ground school means that you'll be a safer pilot, right? I mean, and the more that you understand, yeah. the more that you have. If you just cram to pass the FA exam, that's not really going to be a benefit to you. And I will tell you, at least at this point... And, and for the foreseeable future, every student that enrolls gets an email directly from me. They get my direct contact. If they are having a problem, I'm interested. I'm a flight instructor. I've been a flight instructor for a lot of years, uh, some 26 years. Um, and I really am passionate about seeing you succeed. So uh, first thing you get after you enroll is an email from me telling you where to find this podcast. Of course, you've already found it. Totally. The blog and uh, other resources that we have, plus just letting you know how to get hold of me. And I uh, I just become answer central. Even if I don't have the answer, I'm the one who you'd reach out to. And then I go and help you find the correct answer. Um, you know, Whoever needs to take care of you, I coordinate that. So you're not running all over the place doing phone jail stuff. You just write your flight instructor, and uh, I take care of it. So, so there it is, SpectacularInteractive.com. Spectacular. Um, just spectacular, but add an I before they are. SpectacularInteractive.com. Again, uh, $1.99 for your basic ground school. It's an absolute still, and now, enjoy the show. Now boarding the Aim High Podcast. Aviation made easy. With your host, Erica Wiggins. The Aim High Podcast. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Aim underscore High. And now, the CFI for Aim High, Erica Wiggins. And hello. So, today... We let that music die off there. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about IFR ratings, mm-hmm. and um, in as we're back on the educational tangent here. But actually, this is something that is it can be a fun rating to get. It's going to be most likely the most difficult rating to add to your certificate after you get your private. Uh, commercial goes pretty easy. Multi-engine is easy. Uh, I call it easy. 
I, I think they're, you know, relatively speaking compared to private and instrument. Um, those are your, your simpler ratings to add on. But instrument's going to be a challenge. And But before you go down that path, just because it's the next thing on the horizon, uh, you really need to think about, is this something that you want to do, you should do? What are the benefits of it? What kind of uh, caution do you need to take and considerations to mm-hmm. getting this rating? Because you don't want to just go into something um, assuming that it's going to be good for you and actually have it be something that's a detriment to your safety. And I, uh, as frequently we do on this podcast, I consider people's personality and, and emotions in a lot of these the decision-making process. And uh, when it comes to IFR rating, personality type um, is part of the considerations. But in honor of, of our topic today, I'm going to be doing our podcast like this. <laughs> I should have brought my hood in for you. <laughs> <laughs> I have the hood. Right you have there. a hood? Oh, of course oh, wow. I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, I teach I'm not actually going to do that. And if you're listening <laughs> just to the audio version, I put a shirt over my head. So um, <laughs> I, I was making it so I couldn't see. So, but no, IFR ratings, that's. Uh, that's a big step, right? I mean, that's a huge rating, right? That's a. It that's is. A, it's a lot of work, and um, and first, you know, let's kind of define about you know the different types of flying because there's instrument flying, and that's flying by reference to instruments. You're going to get some of that during your private pilot course, and it's important just in case you find yourself inadvertently in a low visibility situation. It also builds your skills for when you're flying at night. They just so you learn to interpret the instruments better, um, quicker. Uh, control the plane without that outside visual reference. That's instrument flying. Uh, IFR flying ha- next is where you are rated and you have a IFR clearance. Mm-hmm. So it's really about the type of flight plan you're on, the type of pilot that you are, the type of plane you're in. Um, you have I, to follow like the procedures and all that. Absolutely. Is that what you're referring yeah, you're, to? You're like under posi- yeah, you're under positive control by air traffic control, and um, you have you have to have a. Uh, flight plan filed and a clearance received and it's very planned and controlled there's your uh, clearances and then there's the backups to that that you would default to if for some reason it uh, you lost communication so there's there's a lot that goes around IFR flying and IFR flying does not necessarily mean that you're flying with no visibility IFR flying really is about the type of clearance you're on and the plane and the pilot, you could be in perfectly clear skies. It could be you're flying IFR because you're over 18,000 feet and have gone into flight levels where it is required that all flights are on an IFR flight plan. So IFR flying is not necessarily flying without visibility. Next is weather flying. And this is where, you know, really it's, um, you know, it hits the grindstone. Right. And this is where you are flying by reference to instruments in either low visibility or active weather, rain, some turbulence, uh, potentially if you're in that type of weather, you're looking at icing. So this is where the workload skyrocket, the tension and nerves start to well up inside of you, and you're on an IFR flight plan, and you have uh, all the dealing with, with the control and and then an approach when you get to your destination. So there's a lot of factors. Yes, this it, is it where seems, it's all coming together. Yeah. So this is where the instrument flying and the IFR clearance come together in weather flying. And, uh, and that's where um, accidents happen and a lot of caution needs to be 
taken in that in weather flying. And it's not something that you just go after once you get your rating. Right. So it's like, oh, I'm IFR rated. Let me just take. Yeah, let me on. just take. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, and I'll talk about that some more in considerations. But um, you you ought to consider yourself ready to intern when you get your IFR rating, mm. and uh, you know, take someone with you if you're expecting weather. And right. I I have done that quite a bit in my career as a pilot just been hired to accompany somebody because I had more experience in weather flying than they did. And they they were new IFR pilots. I got you. So the idea then, I mean, and I don't want to chop off where you're going, but the idea that I guess something that you'll cover here is, is that before you're ready to fly IFR through weather and all that stuff, get really familiar with the procedures that that go into flying. Right. And you will get very familiar with all the procedures just as part of getting your IFR rating. But don't think that that intimacy of being able to um, fly IFR right. means that you're ready for weather flying. Right. They I, are two different animals. And I know that this is intuitive, but, you know, explain, I mean, can, can you kind of break down why, why in particular, if you're flying IFR and now you're in heavy weather, not j- just heavy weather itself is tough, uh-huh. but now you're, you know, you're taking on all the IFR procedures and all on top of that. Why does that... I mean, that, that puts off the big siren in your head, like, oh, wow, fly with somebody, make sure that all those things happen. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you're going to be flying IFR and then maybe getting into weather versus the other way around. You're not going to be in that weather unless you're um, IFR, unless it was by accident, in which case the ac- the probability of you having a fatal accident in that scenario are very high. If you're a non-instrument rated pilot and you inadvertently got into IFR conditions, so VFR into IMC, instrument meteorological right. conditions, is a uh, you know real high accident rate scenario. Um, so you're an IFR pilot, you're on an IFR flight plan, and then you get into weather. So it's the weather that's adding the extra layers of tension. And it's because now you really cannot see you may have to fly an approach to, you know, close to or all the way to the minimum descent altitude or um, decision height, depending on the type of approach you're doing. And you also have to be communicating with air traffic control during that time. And very likely, you've got a few scared passengers. So that's, there's a lot of considerations to take Lots care of. Lots of stuff going on, a lot of distractions. You have to be able to multitask. And, and if all Keep of it cool. just becomes too much, at minimum, you have to be controlling that airplane. And it's just, it, it is a lot. I have been in those scenarios, and it, it will max you out. And you just have to, you know, prioritize your efforts to, A, control the airplane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if <laughs> Number that's, one, and yeah. then you can, you know, and we call it aviate, navigate, communicate. Uh-huh. So aviate, control that airplane, make sure you know where it's going, and then get back to ATC. Hopefully you can keep it all just going in a roll and nothing right. is getting dropped off. But right. if you have to prioritize and something's got to give, aviate, navigate, communicate. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, so there's a reason why that, that phrase exists, right? I mean... It's a reminder. It's sitting there just echoing people, in your head. Priorities. Yeah, people yeah. have these things. If all you the just time. start talking to ATC and you're not looking, you know, you drop your scan. Right. Your plane could be spiraling into the ground, right. and because you don't have visual reference and the type of um, uh, illusions and disorientation that can take place in that, you may not realize right. that you're not flying straight and level anymore. So that's why it's aviate, navigate, communicate. And, uh, well, and 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 it's especially true when when you just mentioned that you're going to be flying your plane at, at maybe some of the limits that the plane has, you know what I mean? And so, uh, so the, mar- the margin of error yeah. suddenly is much yeah. bigger, you know, because 
because you're flying the airplane at, at its limits, and then you also have you know weather outside and all that stuff. Yeah, like. I really think it's uh, it's more the pilot's limits. Right. It's very much that human factor in the cockpit. Okay. I, I can most of the time, unless you really got into some wicked turbulence or icing, a good chunk of the time, the the weak link is the human in the cockpit. Um, that's why they, you know, pilot error, pilot error. We see it all over those NTSB sure. reports that we read every week, and and um, yeah, they, they they never blame the airplane. Yeah, very rarely. I mean, sometimes it's mechanical, right? And sometimes it's a freak weather event. I mean, these things do happen. Or like that, that that one that we covered where the light the the flashlight was stuck inside the yeah yeah know. flashlight rolled down into the controls. I mean, these things do happen, but the reality is, and in, in this in weather flying, good chance that the weak link in this whole scenario is the uh, exceeding the capabilities of the pilot. And uh, that's why it's so important not to just go from new, fresh, ink-drying IFR certificate to um, weather flying. And I would also say, and I try to do this with my students, you've got a, a weather flying day and you're kind of most of the way through your IFR rating. Hopefully your instructor is the type that's going to haul you up there mm. and fly with you on those days. I would take my students out on them. Uh, I would like them to experience their, their actual IFR uh, with me. And, and have a chance to get into the muck mm. while they're under my wing because otherwise I'm just trusting that they're going to be responsible and either call me when they want to do some weather flying or a more experienced fellow pilot or another instructor. Uh, that's kind of putting some to chance, whereas in a rating course with me and I see a good, you know, maybe just somewhat stable but still mucky day, you know, to start out and really get them in the actual. Yeah. Um, I would make a point of getting them to fly. I'd call them up and go, let's fly today. This mm. is this is a day for you to let's Learn. start practicing Let those hold skills. Your hand through this one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. See what it's like. And you would be amazed that the difference between the hood or the shirt, as you did, um, you, you can't see anything with that on. But there's kind of this confidence that people have of, yeah, but there's clear sky outside the window. Right. Well, right. Yeah, there's that sense. So they feel a little better. Additionally, when you don't have a hood on and you have like clouds and wispiness <laughs> right. going by the windscreen, right. that creates some pretty funky um, sensations. And I've had more than one student that I got, you know. By the way, up. funky sensation is probably a disco song out there. <laughs> And I bet it's awesome. Yes. Anyway, okay, sorry. So, you know, but I've had more than one student get in that scenario and start to melt down on me in the cockpit. And I'm like, calm down. This is stuff we've been doing. Just don't focus on what's outside. Keep doing what I've taught you. You're a good student. And just because all of a sudden you can't see outside, you're melting down on me. And this is why we do this together. <laughs> so Exactly. Yeah, no, it's... It's interesting. So yeah, so I, I think that's a, a great you know starting point. I guess if I think not a lot of people know you know this anyway, but just to say out loud, like I have my IFR rating doesn't necessarily mean like oh it's terrible weather. Right, let's go let's flying. Go. Yeah. And when you're planning to get your IFR rating, you might want to interview the instructor that you're with and say, will you take me up an actual if we have an opportunity to do it? Um, maybe not the first you know ten hours of your certificate but you know really they ought to be willing to get you out there in some real stuff Keep so that your first it. exposure to it isn't after you get your rating yeah no that's yeah it doesn't make sense so so let's talk about you know do you really need an IFR rating i mean this is a big deal this is a lot of money it's a lot of studying it's a whole lot of practice do you need it um, it's a very individual question and each person's going to answer it differently um, what would you say though 
even though you're going to not want to answer this, at large, does the average aviator need it? I think, you know, that kind of goes, gets ahead into my soapbox. But I think in general, if really what you want to do is go after your $100 hamburger and just have fun on Sunday mornings, you probably don't need it. Hmm. Um, And that goes to my next question, really. And the better question is, do you need it? Is should you get one? Right. You know, should you have it? Um, It allows you the flexibility to fly in low visibility. So now, especially if you're a commuter, somebody who goes back and forth to work, we see this a lot in California, like especially Northern California, Bay Area commuters. A lot of people are flying um, into the Silicon Valley area out from rural areas. I had quite a few friends who did that. Uh, You're a commuter. So you're going back and forth to work. That extra flexibility, especially on a foggy, sucked-in morning, and uh, is going to help you quite a bit. Sure. Also, your aircraft may determine some of this. Do you have an aircraft that's pressurized or oxygen system, and you want to fly in the flight levels, you're going to need to get an IFR rating. Mm. So you're going to the higher performance aircraft. That's where you also need to go ahead and and get the IFR rating. Matter of fact, we're working on a high performance course. Just sideline, uh, we are. We just uh, there's a draft of a high performance course already in our system, and uh, we're looking to bring that to market sometime in the near future, folks. So, uh, the most comprehensive high performance uh, no, yeah, it's curriculum great. I have ever seen. Yes, and uh, I have a degree in this stuff, and <laughs> I was reading through this, going, "Wow, I'm getting a lot of reminders, refresher." Sure, um, high performance can be kind of a quick and dirty rating or sign off. Um, actually. Uh, But if you really want to know your stuff and dealing with high performance aircraft, wow, this document is something to to read. And when it gets put onto our platform with all the interactivity and stuff, it'll be super cool. But that's a sideline. Yeah, that's fantastic. (laughs) Squirrel. It's what you would expect from somebody who went to Stanford. That's the guy who... Okay, yes. Let's just... Yeah, Gene, who is part of our our team here. Yeah, he's uh, one of the owners and... He went to Stanford, and he's a pilot. And so, in the process of getting his high performance, he was just writing eating it all up down. all of the information that he found on it, and then what parts he couldn't find, he'd come to me, and, and we'd I'd get him some more information on it, and then he'd turn it into words, and he put it together as a high performance course that goes into everything from altitude flying to um, different type, you know, turbocharged systems, right. and comparing and contrasting one turbocharged system to another. So just understanding this is even the way a, the engines work. Yeah. Even so better even if you're thinking that. you're going to buy a high performance aircraft, this would be a great course to go no, through. No, absolutely. Because you'll learn about what are the different types of systems that you're going to see available out there, and which ones, you know, what are the advantages, disadvantages. Mm. Um, yeah, doing it before you pick out your plane. Absolutely. Actually, would make a lot of sense. Yeah. As of, yeah. Yeah. So this is. Uh, I'm really. Anxious for this to get to market. Not, we don't have a deadline on that yet, but um, just to let you know, it's coming because we're this talking weekend. about IFR. No, this that's not going to happen. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've done my run through it, so it's, uh, but it's still in the editing process. Yeah. So um, anyway, so we've talked about you know some of the benefits, but uh, also, is this the kind of flying that you really should do? So you know, is your airplane capable? So do, if you have an aircraft that really isn't equipped well for IFR, do you really want to get that rating and then not be able to keep it up? If you're already an aircraft owner. Um, and then your personality type, as I alluded to earlier. There's some people... Probably not for me. You know, it's just not for some people. Yeah. And and people just... Why do we get in this perception that we're all created the same and that we don't have our own areas where we excel and where we maybe don't excel? And I had a client who... Really, he's a, a good pilot. 
And, uh, you know, one of my students and also a client in some other areas of flying places and stuff, but he's like, you know what? I started to work on my IFR rating, and then I realized I shouldn't have an IFR rating. It's like I am the kind of person who will push too hard. I, I'm very driven, and I would use it for commuting. And if I had a meeting, I would be like, I have to get to that meeting. And I would push myself into situations where I shouldn't be. And he knew this. He also knew that he was a little bit ADD, which in some scenarios made him excel because he could multitask. I mean, he could rock multitasking. And ADD is not always a bad thing for somebody who needs to multitask. But in his case, he would get, um, he'd have a tendency to fixate sometimes. And he had that combined with the tendency to push, push, push. And um, he just knew an IFR rating could potentially get him in trouble. So he made the personal decision to not get an IFR rating um, because he knew he just wouldn't cancel a flight when he should. Smart, smart aviator there. I mean, it's the thing that you talk about all the time, personal minimums. I mean, it's just one of the things where it's just like, you've got to know, you got to know whether it's a good thing for you or not. Yeah. He knew if there was weather, he needed to hire somebody to fly him. Yeah. And we, and we talk all the time about how, you know, the prudent pilot makes choices based upon their personal minimums and also, you know, understands that, you know, whenever you're under schedule or, or you have time constraints and stuff, really, you can make some bad decisions. Absolutely. And if you have an IFR rating, that just gives you one more avenue to go, but I'm legal to fly in this. Whereas right now he was constrained by the fact that it wouldn't be legal. Right. It, you know, that he would be flying IFR. He just, I mean, it was absolutely a wall if he didn't get that rating. And as soon as he got that rating, he would start to push himself into weather sure. that he knew he shouldn't. And I'm like, yes, I'm glad to see somebody using such great judgment because they looked at themselves from a personal emotional level and knew that it was an area that their emotional makeup wouldn't be a benefit. So now there's a lot of talk out there, and I'm going to challenge a. Um, an assumption that has been floating around in aviation for a long time. And I've even walked with this perception some myself. And uh, does I, having an IFR rating make you a safer pilot? Ooh. Okay. Most people, most instructors, most aviators. Would say yes, right? Would say yes. It's going to make you a safer pilot because. If you get caught in IMC, then you might have a better chance have, of knowing yeah, what to do. you have a better do. chance. And then additionally, the one I would use is that you not only learn the system better, but you learn how to control your aircraft to a much finer degree and by instruments than you ever did as a VFR pilot. You narrow your margins of altitude, near speed, and all of that. You, you bring it down tighter, and you just become a tighter, more exacting pilot after you've gone through IFR training. Right. So that's very beneficial. VFR and IMC. The IFR pilot excels in that area. They have a much lower accident rate than a VFR pilot. Um, so, you know, even on on flight plan, they have lower instances of loss of control, disorientation, all of those accident areas. The statistics show your IFR pilot performs better in those areas mm-hmm. and is safer. So, but statistically, the accident rates, get ready for it are about the same. Really? And even a, about a point higher for IFR pilots. Because they're more wily? 
more more ready to take a risk? You know, like the thing I, we just I talked about. I, or no? I wish I had an answer. I mean, listen, it's it's virtually the same. So I guess there isn't like I mean, it's one percent. It's virtually the same, yeah. but the accident rates where one has a higher accident rate than the other, there's some pretty strong disparities when you start to actually break down the statistics. So. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit off my notes. Sorry for reading, folks. Do but it. the stats used to support IFR pilots were safer. Uh, they used to. But that has shifted over time. So I'm talking about more recent stats getting into the 2000s. While VFR-rated pilots are 4.8 times more likely than IFR pilots to be involved in a weather-related accident. That's quoted out of the NTSB in 2005. IFR pilots have equal or higher fatal accident rates in others. For example, IFR pilots have a lower fatality rate on stall-spin loss-of-control incidents, which I had just mentioned, yet have a six times higher Fatality rate of mid-air collisions under visual meteorological conditions. This was studied by Dr. Douglas Boyd and Sally Sims that I'm quoting from here. So why are IFR pilots having higher instance of mid-air collisions in visual meteorological conditions? Study didn't go into that, but I think that it's worth IFR pilots thinking about. Sure. Are they becoming complacent? at maintaining visual separation just because they're on an IFR flight plan. I tend, my, my spidey senses tell me <laughs> that, yeah, I'm thinking that's what's happening, is that, A, I, part of that disparity may be because v- VFR pilots are becoming better at maintaining visual separation. They are becoming more vigilant. We have a lot of educational and awareness programs out there and initiatives, um, both with uh, collision avoidance on the ground and making people more aware in the air. So a good job is being done at teaching VFR pilots to scan well and clear their areas and other, you know, so their rates are dropping. But we have these IFR pilots who are having an instance of them in visual conditions. So that you know visual meteorological conditions mean your vfr pilots are out there with you um they haven't been weeded out by poor weather and low visibility and it tells me that ifr pilots perhaps are not paying attention Mm. they're getting complacent because they're under positive control by atc they're on the flight plan and they're just looking at the instruments and going Mm -hmm. and they're not looking outside the cockpit right so um, that said, we have these statistics that say they're about equal. But you can make a difference in that. If you're an IFR pilot, yeah, this is, and you know that there is a higher instance of IFR pilots having a particular kind of accident, and it's pretty easily preventable, right. take it upon yourself not to add to that statistic. Sure. This is, this and, is a I gift. Mean, and nobody wants to No one wants to be, to be it, that right? statistic. It all just yeah. comes... It all just comes again, like you like you're referring to. It's just complacency. You know what I mean? It's that's just that's like, my take on it. I mean, nothing was done to study the cause for that spike, but I can make a pretty. I, I've been an IFR pilot. I've gotten comfortable sometimes. Like him. I'm just uh, yeah. you know I'm just going along. I've got my I'm on the Victor Airway, or I'm on my heading, and ATC has got me, yeah. and you know I've been flying all day because I'm you know on a you know the third or fourth leg of shuttling somebody around. Um, so. You know, here's something that IFR pilots need to think about, and you can easily change that statistic. Let's see that the next time it comes around, that that statistic has changed, and we're showing again that VFR pilot or IFR pilots, excuse me, have actually shown 
again, that doing that extra work to get that additional rating and learn new skills and to control the airplane better is now does it. put yeah. them in the safer category yeah. again. Because it should, right? It should. I, mean, I feel like it should. Yeah. Now, where there's another area that IFR pilots are going to have accident rates issues is that is that weather flying piece I talked about again. VFR pilots aren't going into that unless it's unintentional. Right. But IFR pilots are flying in ickier weather. They are making approaches. They they are overtaxing their human self. So there's going to be a collection of accidents that are going to be s- centered around that. And and that's just the nature of engaging in weather flying. Mhm that now you have an IFR pilot, IFR flying versus, that's why I defined this at the beginning, now taking it into the weather flying arena. And it might not even be pilot error, but it's just that you are subjecting yourself to the elements more. Further, it's just further risk, right? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about risk management, and that's yeah, part of what it is. It is, and so you need bit. to know that that's there. Yep. Um, there is a Canadian study, just another interesting area of awareness for IFR pilots to have the first 50 to 100 hours after you get your IFR rating is when the accident rates are highest. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So is that overconfidence? You haven't been um, knocked around a bit by some weather, like some of us more experienced pilots. We know that there's some gremlins in those clouds. Right. Um, you know, feeling, again, you know, they haven't had the experience and they didn't consider themselves more of an intern when they got their certificate. They just jumped in and said, I can fly in weather. Right. Well, yeah. and it's possible that they've been the you know, they've had their pilot certificate for a certain amount of time. Now they've got their IFR. They're an experienced pilot at this point. Right? Yeah, yeah, and they want to use it. But it's not experience with the the circumstance. Yeah, yeah, I have a saying I use a lot, and experience is what you have right after you needed it. Mm. <laughs> so uh, IFR pilots out there, unless your instructor made, did a good job of, you know, getting you into some actual and, and exposing you to some weather flying, um, you know, do consider if you just got your rating and you haven't had that experience Go get that experience. Find a buddy who's more experienced. Hire an instructor. It's going to be cheap price to pay for getting the experience with a safety net. Mm-hmm. And and really, you know, study weather. And I'm not just talking about the experience in the plane. Start studying weather. Start to really understand how to interpret the reports that you're, you know, this is path. I know that we've all agonized over uh, weather report. Uh, interpretations on our FAA tests and that type of thing. But you really need to start to look at them for their nuances and understanding where freezing levels are, understanding where you have the potential of great turbulence, using PIREPS. It is now incumbent upon you to not just be able to read weather and pass an FAA test. You need to be able to read weather. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to look outside, too, and read weather. So, So, And that's, again, to to recover on that... so, and you're more vulnerable, according to the studies, according to those Canadians, right? <laughs> Up to 100, 100 hours. Yeah, 50 to 100 hours. That window has the highest accident okay. rate for IFR So something to think about. If you get In your that IFR, Canadian study. If you got your IFR rating, that's something to think about, right? Yeah. Take, take some time. Take some time. Take, a, you know, definitely get some help and, and, uh, and make it a personal challenge to always improve your skills as an IFR pilot. And I say that even as a... Private pilot, you know I'm always challenging you to improve yourself. Don't get complacent. A- aviation isn't a place for complacency. Right. It just there's no. Uh, it has the the sky has no patience for it. <laughs> just the reality. So um, so considerations already said it. The sky has no patience. 
has got to be a young adult novel somewhere. And I bet it's not very good. And you know that I, I have no grasp of pop culture, so I, I lean on you to tell me this stuff. <laughs> it just sounds like a title of like some, some book about mm-hmm. any, something. I don't know. Anyway. Another consideration is maintaining currency. So now you've got this new pilot certificate. And we talked about this before, currency for private pilots, but right. currency for IFR pilots. And um, there's... It's all spelled out in the regs, so you can just go to those and, and find it there. But basically, in, within a six-month period, uh, you need to have had some IFR experience, either under the hood or in actual conditions, or an approved simulator, um, at least six instrument approaches you have to do holding procedures, intercepting and tracking courses through the use of navigation. And um, so these are, y- you can log them yourself, like as part of your normal flights, that you make sure you get those approaches or if you realize you're lacking, get a safety pilot and go up and pound out those approaches before the six months come along. If you haven't done that, then you need to go for an instrument competency check with an instructor and have them make sure that your skills are still up to par. Like right now, I haven't flown instruments in a while. I would need to go get an instrument competency check. And I do that gladly because I want somebody to check me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the idea. Find my blind spots. Right. And, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've had your IFR rating. You can have some blind spots. It's just natural. So, yeah, I would be, hey, who's going to do it for me? Um, So how about the requirements? You've decided maybe this is something you want to tackle. Again, I'm reading. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, You have to have your private pilot certificate done. Can't do this first. The usual read, write, and converse fluently in English. Uh, Have your medical and then log ground training from an authorized instructor or complete a home study course, which I hope that we'll be working on an IFR course to add to our Baby stable steps. sometime soon. Baby but steps. right now we don't have one. Right. Um, pass the test with 70 or better. I had 60 questions, and um, it's a tough test. But uh, the last time I took it from my instrument instructor, a long time ago, I nearly aced it. You can do it. Absolutely. Just you know, study hard. You can do this. And um, I've talked about it before that you want to do super well on your written's because then your oral exam is going to go easier for you with the the designated examiner. Mm. Um, they're go- if they see that you passed with a 72 or whatever, they're going to look at you and say, you were kind of weak on this stuff. They'll look at the, the codes that are identified, the questions you missed, and they're going to make sure that you have filled those gaps in knowledge where you missed stuff on your written. So that means during your oral exam, you're going to have to prove verbally Mm. that you know that stuff you missed on your written. So how about you learn it on your written, do really well on your written, and not cause yourself a whole bunch of grief on a day that's already super stressful going through your check ride. That's a really stressful day. I don't know about all of you. I get a little nauseous. Well, and it's easy. And again, it depends on who the guy giving you your oral exam is, right? But like, it's so easy to mess with people when they're under stress like that or if they misspeak like one word or something like that. And they come in, they start correcting you, and now you're under the, you know what I mean? Now you're really tripping over your words it's just it's you just have so much anxiety and of course your instructor should have gone through all of that with you you know at length as well after you're written and and debriefed you on those things that you missed but seriously folks just learn it for the written and then you go in with this nice score that you show the examiner and your life will hopefully go easier unless they're just really you know being a hard ass um you can edit that (laughs) but uh you know it 
it's so you have to show you know it's this interesting. knowledge. By the way, point. can I can I just talk about that phrase hard ass? Okay, can I talk about it for a second? <laughs> it's interesting because nobody likes a hard ass personality, but we love them physically. <laughs> That's the next podcast. <laughs> That's going to be over on Active Explorer that we're recording later, talking about fitness lifestyle <laughs> and getting good buns. Um, <laughs> whole other podcast, folks, but that is a new podcast I've launched. That's a tangent, but we'll talk about that later. But yeah, it's a, before you get that IFR certificate, you have to know this stuff. Right. So really, the examiner is doing you a favor, even if they are that way. And uh, <laughs> so as far as experience, 50 hours across country as pilot in command, 10 of which has to be in an airplane. So you can, you know, in case you cross over different types of air aircraft, um, then 40 hours of actual or simulated instrument time in the areas of operation listed, but you know, it goes on at least 15 hours has to be received from an instructor who holds a instrument airplane rating, uh, three hours of instrument flight training from an authorized instructor in an airplane that has the appropriate instrument rating within two calendar months of the test and then uh, cross-country flight procedures, including at least one cross-country flight in an airplane with an authorized instructor, and blah, 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 and you're using air traffic control that involves 250 miles along airways or as directed by ATC. Instrument approach at each airport, three different kinds of approaches with the use of navigation systems. So um, I think I hit all of those points. It's a lot of... It's so, a lot of time. So you do got to accomplish some things before you can look oh. into getting IFR. Well, some of this is during your IFR training. Right. And then like some of the cross country you could have had like after you get your private pilot certificate so that and then you're working on the um, the 50 hours. You want right. to you want to have don't just go straight into this if you can help it from private to I mean obviously you need well, to build up Well, what's your advice then? I mean, I, I it, would it's give yourself 100 people, I'd but. give yourself maybe 100 hours or so and and knocking out some cross country and just getting really comfortable with air traffic control. If you know you're going to go right on to your uh, instrument rating and I advise, If you're on like the fast track to become like an airline pilot. Yeah, say. I mean admittedly, I I just jumped right into instrument right. training. Um, but that was because I was going through training at flight safety. I mean, I was in a accelerated type course, 141 school. Um, and a lot of people go that route, but if you're just an enthusiast, you know, you're doing this because you love flying. This isn't, you know, um, go ahead and give yourself a hundred hours. Always use flight following. I can't tell you enough how, you know, not only is it a safety factor, um, but it gets you even more comfortable with communicating with ATC and realizing that these are not, they are not your enemy. They are there to help you and, and get comfortable with them because that's one of your greatest assets you have up in the airplane as a private pilot, instrument pilot, any of us. I mean, we are a team with air traffic control. And as soon as you frame your mind around that, the sooner the better. Right. Um, don't look at them as the enemy. And uh, although if you just feel like they are agitating you or you just want to agitate them, go to our podcast, Agitating ATC. Yeah. Because we do cover the ins and outs of how to <laughs> agitate ATC. With an air traffic controller. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's that's one of the things. There's actually YouTube clips of it, too. So you can check our It's YouTube a good one. Channel. It's a really good but, episode yeah. to go back and find. Yeah. So. But no. So that's one of the, the big things is, you know, t- especially as an IFR pilot, I mean, the 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 acting as a team with with atc obviously i mean you have oh, to do it you I mean, need it's to critical. yeah it's critical and and you want to um treat them kindly 
They have a whole lot going on. You need to understand that they're busy. They're on multiple frequencies with multiple aircraft. You are not the center of their universe <laughs> as much as you would like to be. Right. So if they don't respond right away or they tell you to stand by because they've got their hands full, not only respect them, but respect the other people who they're helping at that moment. They are doing the best they can. And, uh, and I would advise after listening to this, if you're thinking about getting an IFR rating, go listen to the Agitating ATC podcast. Uh, I really, I think I'll officially make that a recommendation to pair with yeah. this podcast. Okay. Right. And uh, it's, it's a good one. Nathan Myers is a pro at teaching people how to communicate and work with ATC. Right. And he can also tell you some of his pet peeves and things that people have done that just got in under his skin. And you don't want to be that that pilot no <laughs> yeah no well if if you if you think atc is being adversarial to them it's likely the case that you weren't doing what you were supposed to up there, yeah there's right? there might be a, you might have a growing area <laughs> <laughs> an opportunity for growth and you're aviating aviating and occasionally i mean hey let's admit it some of them are jerks right just like some pilots are jerks and some checkout cashiers are jerks you're going to come across them sure yeah i mean that's going to happen i i've had them i had a student and quite frankly the air traffic control got irritated with my student and just sent me west away from orlando executive and further west and further west and further west and i'm like really turn me around bring me back i'm sorry wow how do i how do i apologize enough wow (laughs) you know and uh (laughs) they went to the limit of what they could do to us wow and uh you know but my my student had irritated them and showing that he wasn't fully competent at that time and I tried to salvage it as best I could, but he'd already kind of irritated. The damage. <laughs> the damage was done. Was done. And as an instructor, I'm just over there going, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so can I ask you then, um, you've talked a lot about the IFR ratings and stuff, but as a transition, as an instructor, um, what did you find in all, all those times teaching a pilot who wanted to become an IFR rating uh, to, to get their IFR rating? What was kind of the hardest thing you thought for pilots what, what what's the biggest challenge for the people? biggest challenge is the overload um the division of attention that pilots have to have between communicating and navigating having a good scan on their instruments it's it's just an overload so i would try hard to introduce different facets over the first few flights um in succession not all at once and occasionally jump in and relieve them on the radio if the navigation piece was starting to overwhelm them. But this is only early on because they have to learn right. I mean, all of this. By the time we're at the end of the course, my concern shifts to this is a student who may potentially be in weather. But because I can't just magically order up weather flying, I have to find other ways to synthesize that uh, sense of being overwhelmed. Right. So while they're flying and shooting approaches, I may throw in some instrument failures. That's a pretty common one. Plus, I'll just start asking them about their dog, about their family, um, something else that I know might get under their craw, um, anything to stress them out and and really start to overtax them. Sure. Because that's going to happen in real life. Right. They have to get used to holding it together when it's wrong. And I, when I teach multi-engine um, IFR, of course, it's normal part of the training is to pull an engine on them while they're shooting approaches. And uh, and I don't cut any slack on that stuff. I want to know that I really put them through the ringer. I wasn't the nice, easy instructor. I was, well, I was nice. I wasn't the easy instructor. I wasn't the, you know, get through this and everything's just going to, you know, you're going to feel comfortable flying with me. I want them to come out of the plane with me 
toward the end of their course sweating. But at the beginning of the course, <laughs> I really tried to have empathy. You're the CrossFit CFI. <laughs> yeah. But I really wanted, at the beginning, I tried to ramp up slowly and not just throw, sling a bunch at them. I wanted them to get the, the ed, different facets added on in succession um, in a way that they could handle so they didn't get frustrated and leave mm-hmm. or get you know feel like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get that. I, I started out with them being systematic and finished with trying to overload them so they could be a better, safer pilot. So that's, that's the biggest thing then. It's, it's just, there's so much more to consider when you're being an IFR pilot. Yeah, right? your workload is way higher. And the stress is way and that, high. And that's the biggest transition. That's yeah, the that's the biggest bit. transition. And you have to fly everything to a tighter standards, um, less variables in heading and airspeed and altitude. Um, and, but that is once, and I teach them also to quit, you know, grabbing the airplane with tight fists right from the get-go. I'm like, give me two fingers. Learn to use your trim. Learn to make the airplane work for you. And take that workload off of yourself. If you're doing this, something's wrong. Right. <laughs> right. So fine, fine handle, fine touching. So. so and that and that's the that's the the biggest thing. And then and then what what did you find was the most common reason why people wanted to get their IFR rating? Um, personal challenge and then flexibility uh, of flying. Uh, I definitely had the commuter student. Um, in, in the mix. So you're knocking stuff off. Just hitting yeah. stuff all over the so, place right now. But that is pretty much all I have on this topic. But I would really like to hear um, what were your reasons for IFR pilots who are listening or current IFR students. Please, uh, you know, f- give me some feedback as to what your reasons are yeah. for becoming an IFR pilot. And um, certainly I hope I gave you some value today. And uh, what are some of the things that you really considered before making this decision? So why are you doing it? And what were the things that you thought of, you know, should you do it? Uh, what, what items were on that list as you try to make the decision? You can send me that feedback to Erica, E-R-I-K-A, at aimhigh, A-M-E, high.com. So just email me directly or tweet me. Um, that would be at active underscore explorer. Uh, that's my that's my personal Twitter account, or you can just reach either of us um, at aim underscore high uh, on Twitter as well. So give us some feedback, folks. We would really like to hear um, your reasons for becoming an IFR pilot and your considerations. And um, if and in general, folks, if you could please go and give us a rating on iTunes. No, actually, that's huge. Yeah, anybody that does that, I was actually having the thought um, maybe we uh, can send some swag. The way of anybody. So if, if you write a good review for us on uh, iTunes, we'll look. We'll look who who wrote the. Yeah, the let's link, check and make sure in terms nicest. of service that that's okay because I don't want to cross any uh, lines uh, there. But uh, um, I'm, I'm going to cross the line. <laughs> I can I can reward it. Him. I can um, reward but it. But we really we, we really would like your feedback. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Oh, my new podcast. Oh, sure. Yeah. Next up, we're going to be recording another podcast, and that is my adventure in health side. And Keith has joined me there um, on the podcast as co-host as well, so you'll get to hear more of our voices. But we'll be talking on different topics. It's going to be outdoor adventure, uh, adventure lifestyle, and part of that is keeping your body fit and ready to go. 
to have fun. And uh, Keith has a background in fitness. Uh, I actually uh, am working on becoming a personal trainer myself. So, and I have a whole lot of experience in outdoor and adrenaline sports. Sure. So you'll get to hear all you can, that. You can see your blog, theactiveexplorer.com. Yes, and uh, and on iTunes, the Active Explorer podcast. Okay. See you later. Are you? No, it's time for an NTSB report. report. Oh my gosh! Yeah, sorry. This just in from the National Transportation Safety Board. June 19th, 2011, North Adams, Massachusetts. A Cessna 172 was involved in a non-fatal accident. After landing at an airport, the pilot taxied to the fixed base operator in order to park the airplane. He was advised to park in the first space near the grass, but was unsure of the location of that space. The pilot taxied to the area where he thought he was supposed to park, then turned the airplane towards the intended parking space, and the right wing made contact with a light pole that was substan- when the plane was substantially damaged. The pilot was uninjured and reported that there were no pre-existing mechanical anomalies of the airplane. The National Transportation Safety Board determined the possible cause of this accident to be... Wait for it! The pilot's inadequate visual outlook and subsequent failure to main clearance from a light pole while taxiing. You know, light poles sometimes jump out in front of you. You know, they got legs. Um, actually, that's not the first uh, accident report I've heard um, somebody taxiing and hitting a light pole. This is not, I mean, you would like to think this is uncommon. Right. You'd like to think this does not happen. It happens, folks. So, you know, remember that it happened to them. It could happen to you. It sounds like something minor. But the reality is this is an accident that happens regularly. Just because your nose wheel is on a center line, don't assume you have clearance. And when you're just meandering around on a ramp or something, really don't assume you have clearance. Well, the other thing, too, is, is is the guy said that he wasn't sure where he was supposed to park. I mean, how terrible yeah. is it just to say, hey, um, where do you want me? Yeah, you can radio back and ask. And also, when you notice, when something happens where you feel confused, right. you feel a little bit more stressed. And remember that those are the moments when you get that, oh, my gosh, where am I supposed to go? I don't understand where they told me to go, and I don't see the site. As soon as you start to get that feeling of nervousness, like you don't understand, right. that's also your signal to pause, hey, just, just look ask. around, ask a, question. ask a question, but also pause and look around because that's when accidents happen. Uh. You, you, you've just added something, that little bit of nervousness causes some tunnel vision. Right. And you don't see stuff as big as a light pole. And this happens. So, folks, there's the tip and the takeaway. And that's takeaway. expensive damage, man. That's yeah, not, that's and it's not, not it's not a cool story to tell in the hangar either. <laughs> this is one you want to strike from the record. But the reality is lots of people do it. And um, a tunnel vision is a big part of that. And it, maybe he was feeling a little nervous and quit looking like he normally would have if he hadn't been nervous about not understanding where to find his parking space. There it is. There you go. Okay, thanks for tuning in to the show. Uh, check us out next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Aim High Podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Aim underscore High and like us on Facebook. And if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes. We know you have many choices when it comes to your podcast, and we thank you for choosing ours. When you're learning how to fly, aim high. Aviation made easy.